Dr. Nate Shanock. And my name is Merrick Egbert. This is the official podcast of the Els for Autism Foundation for Autism. We call our podcast this because it's a play on our foundation's name. And Merrick and I are both terrible golfers. Well, we love how golf has become such a transformative tool to helping people with autism. When I'm not on the podcast, I'm part of our growing research team. And when I'm not part of the podcast, I'm an administrative assistant filling in the gaps of each department like Lou. I'm also autistic. This is our 30th episode of the podcast, The Brain on Autism, featuring advisory board member Dr. Stephen Shore and my own very own co-host, Dr. Nate Chinock. Both individuals are educators in their own right and compelling personalities, so make sure to stay tuned for their interviews on part A of the podcast. What we hope to do is to present news and updates about our foundation, interviews or feature stories that play a big role with us and with the community as a whole. Speaking of which, we also have our Today in the World of Autism segment. On Part B, we'll reposit the news and current events reflective of the world we live in today. Also, check our show notes for websites, resources, and other groovy things you would like to have on the written record for all of you for autism fans. Here are some news and updates about the foundation. Tune into episode 29 to listen to our interviews with advisory board member Paul Morris and his brother Jesse, and with, for the very first time, special guest Sam Ells, host of Sam Sibs Stick Together and the older daughter of the Ells family. They talk about the qualities of siblinghood, the closest that they have to their brothers, and how being touched by siblinghood makes one an advocate for others with a disability, whether it be autism or anything else. Make sure to also listen to the rest of the program to get an idea of what we were doing as a foundation during that time and learn something new about the autism community for our Today in the World of Autism segment. The bulk article for December, for I mean for September, will basically be about the CADI program. Now, the CADI program is our free program that is that stands for Collaborative Autism and Diagnostic Intervention. And it's an early intervention program that allows kids uh, up to age seven to be able to get that diagnosis of autism or to be able to figure out more about what's been going on uh, with themselves and and their families play a a big role in what we, in what happens with the program. It's a, you have a lot of different experts from a lot of different fields. And it's not just about, um, you know, getting the assessment. There's also some treatments that are done kind of along the way. And it's just a really, really good uh, program. And my interview with Dr. Christine Hansberger, who is a very, very special part of the program, will be in a blog article made public very, very soon. Um, And we hope that any one of you will be able to read it to understand how powerful and how greatly needed a program like Caddy is, especially if you had listened last last month or rather the episode that, uh, the prior episode um, where we did talk about uh, early intervention, and we did mention about the CADI program during that. So um, it's 
it's very, very important, especially if you want your child to uh, get the proper diagnosis before uh, sending the child off to the proper school that will be the best for that person since it is going to age seven. So um, that will be the blog article that will come out for the month of September. Um, so on September 18th, yes, the same day as major autism advocate Holly Robinson Pete's birthday was my mother's birthday. Um, not to cast a dark cloud at all, but it was also the same day that uh, famed guitarist Jimi Hendrix passed away in 1970. So, you know, you get a little, you lose a little too, but it's just very, very interesting on what happens on a day of a special event. Even during her formative years, she knew that she wanted to do something different. One of her first roles was as the sole female engineer for her division at Westinghouse. After spending four plus decades in the corporate world, she retired a few years ago and has been very supportive ever since. So, uh, Nate, uh, from what I've heard, from you your mother sounds like a wonderful woman and i'm pretty sure you've already talked about her maybe to death i'm not sure but do you want to tell everyone a little bit more about your mother yes i'd be happy to and first of all happy birthday to merrick's mother debbie uh she's a wonderful person i've gotten to to interact with her on several occasions and you know, she's very bright and um, she's kind and she she really brights, uh, she really brightens up a room. So as far as my, my mom, um, she is a wonderful person. She, I would say, raised me with a good set of values and she taught me from a young age the importance of treating other people with respect and also, you know, trying to, to empathize with other people, trying to take the perspective of others when you make decisions. And my mom is a very kind and caring person. Um, she raised me as well as my three sisters and she did it starting from a very young age. Um, they had my older sister, when she was about 22 years old. And I've always had a lot of admiration for her ability to start a family and, and parent so effectively at such a young age. So my mom is, is also a great person to talk about music, art, and, and movies with. She's very much a movie buff. So I think, um, Merrick, you guys would get along very well. And uh, um, you can decide um, because I know that there's another special birthday that came up. Um, but <laughs> it's really up to you to decide if you really want to address it. Um, <laughs> it was just something that I ran into and I thought to myself, I advertise so much about what my family's like, their birthdays, uh, anniversaries, all that. But I like to also have my co-host get a spotlight on his, you know, important people, I would say. So 
unless you know we should wait until much much later on maybe next year for that to be addressed merrick that's very good looking out you're a true friend for bringing this one up so i'd like to wish a happy belated birthday to my wife jen who celebrated her birthday on the 24th of this month and you know i can't uh even begin to express how much she means to me of course um we've known each other for almost 10 years now and we've developed such a, a wonderful relationship and and friendship and so yes uh, i'd like to wish a very happy birthday to her and happy to be able to announce that on the podcast thanks again merrick yeah because i'm pretty sure that she listens to every single episode that's been put out there so i just was making yeah. sure to keep it on standby so that she doesn't end up going and where was my birthday on here <laughs> so yeah. that's my way of looking out for you you really kept me out of the doghouse with this one. <laughs> <laughs> no, jokes aside. Um, yeah, my my wife is, is a wonderful person and um, she deserves all the happiness for her 29th birthday that she just celebrated. Yep, and I got to meet her and I will have to uh, agree with Nate that she is a wonderful person. Thanks, Merrick. And actually, interestingly enough, in this whole thing that we're doing today, she's an educator too. So, you know. She really has no excuse not to listen to this episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Birthday shout out, interviews with educators. We've got the whole nine yards. Yeah, we definitely do. So, um, <clears throat> Other important events um, for this month is uh, we are going to cross the threshold into autumn. When the leaves will change color and moments will get cooler, it is also when our neck of the woods, South Florida, gets to be more in season for people to come on by. While we are in season, why not take a tour of our excellent campus and learn about everything we do around here? Even those who may come from afar may be interested in our global reach. It will also allow anyone listening to learn more about our vibrant fall rec schedule and how our educational system is working for this new semester. Please contact our senior events coordinator, Jen Nicholas, to reserve a spot for a tour. We try to have it on the first Wednesday of each month, but please register if you want to see our beautiful campus. And the last story I have of the foundation update is that the people have chosen and we have had two winners for the autism spectrum award the first winner is advisory board member dr carrie magro dr carrie magro is an award-winning professional speaker best-selling author and autism consultant to a number of media productions including love on the spectrum he started professional speaking nine years ago via the national speakers association and has spoken at over 900 events during that time in addition, Dr. Magro is CEO and president of KFM Making a Difference, a nonprofit organization that hosts inclusion events and has provided 86 scholarships for students of autism for college and counting since 2011. 
You can find his books on Amazon, which includes Defining Autism from the Heart and Autism and Falling in Love. He is based in Hoboken, New Jersey. And yes, his website will be on the show notes. Our second winner is Massachusetts native Gayasi Burke Abbotts. Gayasi Burke Abbott is a writer, public speaker, and autism self-advocate. In addition to serving on the boards, committees, and commissions of several autism and disability organizations, Gayasi is on the faculty of the LEND Leadership, Education, and Neurodevelopmental and Related Disabilities Program at Boston Children's Hospital and UMass Boston's Institute for Community Inclusion. He's contributed to and written articles for such publications as the Autism and Adulthood Journal and the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal. Recently, Gayasi published a book about his life called My, My Mother's Apprentice and Autistics Write a, Writes a Passage. He lives in Bedford, Massachusetts, and we will be sure to have a link to his website on our show notes also. Congrats on the winners of the Autism Spectrum Award for 2022. All winners get to attend the grand finale event, our biggest annual fundraising event, and get a free nomination to our advisory board. Yes, huge congratulations to our two winners, and please keep up the great work that you're doing. So, as always, it is time to discuss in Today in the World of Autism. Starting with my co-host, Dr. Nate Shinnok, and his fantastic research-oriented stories. Okay, guys. Got two, actually four, highly exciting stories for you today. So here goes. The first one is based on a recent journal article that was published in the British Medical Journal. And... This article found that air pollution increases hospital admission risk for autistic children. The authors of the study concluded that hospital admissions for issues like hyperactivity, aggression, or self-injury may be mitigated by effectively lowering air pollution levels throughout the world. The likely mechanism behind this identified correlation is that exposure to air pollution over the course of several days or weeks can induce both bodily and neurological inflammation, possibly intensifying symptoms of autism that are already in existence. Exposure to neurotoxicants has also been identified as one of the many environmental risk factors for the development of autism in utero. Researchers from the Institute of Public Health and Medical Care at Sewell National University Hospital obtained this finding by looking at official government data on daily hospital admissions for autistic children between the ages of 5 and 14 years, spanning from 2011 to 2015. They also collected data on national daily levels of fine particular matter, nitrogen dioxide, and ozone all of which are toxic substances for the human body when breathed in. And they looked at these levels in each of the 16 different regions in the Republic of Korea. And they correlated the number of hospital visits with the geographic location and the amount of these toxins. Their analyses showed that short-term exposure to fine particle matter 
nitrogen dioxide, and ozone were all associated with heightened risk of hospital admission. This trend was heightened for boys relative to girls, which suggests that there could be uh, a heightened sensitivity to these toxins for boys. There may also be a neurological difference that leaves them more susceptible to impact. The authors noted that this neuroinflammation hypothesis or neurotoxicant hypothesis could some degree explain why some children with autism have experienced reduced symptoms following hyperbaric oxygen treatments or even dietary changes that can lower inflammation. They did conclude that the results were associative and further research would be needed in other areas of the world. So trying to prove that this finding extends beyond the Republic of Korea. Additionally, areas with higher pollution could have had other factors increasing hospitalization risk. Merrick, what are your thoughts on this research study and finding? And is there anything families could do to try and lower exposure to these toxins? Or is it pretty much luck of the draw? So I find it very interesting because um, I think that more research needs to be done on what is called sensory processing disorder, overstimulation, and anything like that, because um, I would expect since pollution itself is an invasive environmental harm, um, basically anybody who has autism will feel such a greater degree of impact by something like that than if it was just a naturally occurring atmosphere or naturally occurring environment, I believe. Right. I also find it interesting that they say that the trend was greater for boys than girls um, because it is generally more known that uh, men or males with autism are a lot more it's a lot easier to 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 like basically there there's this whole thing this whole misdiagnosis problem with women and females over men and males and so maybe the question is is that you know should there be more time spent um on you know studying and research, especially with girls, then basically giving them the same amount of study and research as the boys do because mm -hmm. of the differences that we all know in boys with autism and girls with autism. So I think that that is also something to think about. I think that there are parts of the world um, that are kind of known for having high levels of air pollution. And I would be interested in finding out more about what that does to a population that may also increase the development of neurodevelopmental disorders or anything related thereof. Um, and I think that if I was to basically uh, say anything uh, when it, in regards to families, I think obviously overall, it would be great not to live in an area with high pollutant levels. And this is not just for families who 
you know, are fearful that their children may have autism or may get autism or whatever it is. It's, it's just, you know, I think that's very much common sense that if you want to live in an environment that you feel the most safe in, you maybe should not live in higher pollutant levels, level areas. I would say try experimenting by moving out of a big city or an urban area and instead living somewhere in a more rural area. Um, live somewhere where, you know, there's more nature, um, where you're, you're basically feeling like, you know, you're at one with uh, the natural world um, and maybe see exactly how that how that will help you fare. Mm -hmm. Now, as I have may have said before, you know, um, the, the risk of pinning such so much down to environmental factor is that there is so much that happens in an individual with autism's life. And there are so many different symptoms that trying to nail it all down to one particular environmental factor or nailing it all down to this or to that, I mean, not completely understand uh, much of the enigma behind autism. And it also may make it more difficult to look at people who happen to have autism and are very successful to look at them as being, you know, having a neuro difference if you believe that what happened to them was a disease or a sickness or an illness or some kind of a bizarre environmental factor. That's very but, well said. But on the other hand, of course, there's also the question, you know, I think that a real question is, is exposure to these things not exactly starting or causing autism, but is it an environment that is not suitable for someone with autism? It's like having a movie theater and having like a sensory friendly or an autism friendly, you know, yeah. night where there are less sounds, less noise, and someone with autism can feel at home in the theater versus a regular time where there's a lot of people a lot of screaming a lot of you know sensory things and should instead the recommendation be to make sure that if you have a child with autism to not expose them to these areas not because you feel like their you know behavior or their condition will get worse or that you know they or if they don't have autism then they will get autism but rather if they have autism that it's not going to it's not it's not going to make them feel comfortable and it's not safe it's not helpful and it's dangerous to them to be exposed to that kind of atmosphere so i think that that's really in a way to reframe this uh story you know a pos uh, in a way to because i'm not saying that it's completely you know i'm not saying it's bogus or anything but yeah. another way to frame the story is, <clears throat> is it good to be a child with autism in an environment with high air pollutants, especially because of the sensory problems and the overload and meltdowns? And I would probably say, yeah. you know, 
yes, it's probably not good for that. But then I would also say it's not good to be in an environment with high air pollutants anyways. So it, that's it's, it's an interesting story, and it does make a good amount of sense. But it's really about how you approach the subject. That's what matters. Do you approach it as, oh, my gosh, this is what's causing this. And so, you know, if we if basically everyone didn't live in an area of high pollutants and autism will not exist, or is it something along the lines of, you know, maybe not live in those areas and people with autism will feel a lot better? Or is it a combination of both? And I think that whatever way one thinks, you know, maybe it's not completely wrong to think one way or the other. Yeah, I'm I'm really happy that you you made the distinction between what this research study was trying to accomplish compared to what's been done in prior literature. Um, this study was focusing on how pollution can intensify symptoms that are already there. I know that from a standpoint of looking at causal factors or contributing factors of autism, there's some, you know, I would say unconvincing evidence at this point that there is a link between, you know, toxin exposure like lead or mercury or arsenic and the development of autism. You know, um, some researchers are looking at at baby teeth of children or at uh, or at hair samples to try to look at you know their exposure to these toxins at different stages of the developmental process. And to my knowledge, at least, there's pretty loose um, evidence at the moment. So I want to be clear that. The findings of this article, they don't show by any means that, you know, people with autism become that way because of this exposure to, to toxicity. But um, because I don't think that's the case, I think, I think findings that link um, those two things, the correlation findings, more so speak to an issue with eliminating those toxic substances from the body or from the brain rather than a causal um, factor. But so we want to be clear that we're not saying that, but like Merrick said, if there are ways for children to have better air quality, that's always a better thing. And it may be especially important for children with autism. Definitely. Okay, so I'll move on here to story number two. And we're keeping it pretty scientific today. You know, we had Dr. Shore and I as the interview guests. So uh, we, we want to really dive into the science today and kind of nerd out here. So, or as uh, remember that movie, I think it was called The Martian. So you're yeah. going to science it. <laughs> I'll try to I'll try to keep it interesting still guys <laughs> <laughs> we don't want any snoozer stories here well maybe some people listen to the podcast as they're trying to get to sleep who knows uh, <laughs> so with the heterogeneity of traits present on the autism spectrum heterogeneity means that there's a lot of broad 
um, presenting traits, of course. Researchers have often noted that identifying subgroups could be very helpful for devising more customized intervention approaches versus just saying, this is the most suitable intervention for autism or that is the most suitable intervention. Thanks to researchers from the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute of New York, we may now be closer to accomplishing that important goal. They used a large, a vast amount of medical records. Um, and these researchers found that co-occurring symptoms and conditions could be effectively subdivided um, for individuals with ASD. And these subgroups could be linked up with differing prenatal risk factors. The research involved investigating the medical records of 1,258 children diagnosed with ASD, as well as 123,000 neurotypical children and uh, their mothers as well, from before conception to five years of age. Many of the children with ASD had one or more co-occurring conditions like epilepsy, sleep disorders, psych psychiatric conditions, developmental delays, and gastrointestinal issues. So the three subgroups that emerged were those with a high prevalence of co-occurring symptoms. So multiple um, co-occurring issues. Group number two was the co-occurrence of either developmental delay or a seizure-related condition. And group three was a low prevalence of co-occurring symptoms where Autism was present, but there wasn't signs of another um, physical health or mental health comorbidity. The authors found that the use of anti-inflammatory or other complex medications, as well as bacterial infections during pregnancy related to the high prevalence co-occurring symptom group, immune deregulatory conditions such as asthma and joint disorders predicted the developmental delay or seizure co-occurrence group, and then overall pregnancy complications, whether it be mental health issues, preterm labor, or high blood pressure, were related to the low prevalence um, co-occurring condition group. So I know that's a lot to uh, digest in an auditory manner, but I want to speak to you guys um, about what this finding really means and why it's important. So again, when it comes to these correlation type studies, we're not by any stretch saying that these maternal complications are a causal link to the development of autism, but in just knowing that they may be correlated in some way, that they may be um, a contributing factor we, we know that with autism, we say contributing factor because there's a combination of so many different genetic um, and environmental factors uh, that, that contribute to this condition. But if we know a little bit more about some of the pregnancy complications that, that may contribute, you know, it could fuel our knowledge into just learning a little bit more about autism from a biological standpoint and then being able to develop 
more customized intervention um, approaches again based on these subtypes. So Merrick, what are your thoughts on research aiming to identify subgroups of ASD? What are some of the pros and cons of this approach compared to the spectrum approach? Well, while the um, spectrum approach has its merits, uh, because it, it, I think that part of the reason for this approach is to make sure that everyone with autism gets treated and uh, goes through the same treatments and everything, no matter where they fall on the spectrum. But if, if you have such a generalized tool system, the problem is, is that there are so many different groups out there that may need specific treatments and specific ways of, uh, you know, getting the therapy, getting the therapeutic methods and treatments that you may miss if you just treat everyone within the same condition, pretty much as the same type of person. Um, it is kind of funny to think to myself because I have championed in the past that we really, uh, that it's really, really good to, you know, label things appropriately and where they are instead of just basically saying, well, it's just a spectrum or it's just autism or, you know, this person on the spectrum or something like that without necessarily telling someone where they fall on the spectrum. Because, you know, someone could be really, really, you know, could be a lot more with dealing with a lot less supports and then someone could be dealing with a lot more supports. And I think that it is not a bad thing to identify people by either how many supports they have or, you know, the functioning and all that stuff. So I, I think that that is uh, pretty important. Um, I, uh, I do believe, um, that really with anything, um, what exactly, I think that a question I would have to this research group is what they think makes comorbidities with autism more something that you should do research or study with then someone like, let's say someone has OCD and maybe they have OCD and schizophrenia. Does that, you know, should we be doing also research on the comorbidities with OCD? Should we be doing comorbidities, especially when it comes to learning disabilities? Like you have a little bit of dyscalculia, you have a little bit of dyslexia, you have a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And is research needed in that? Uh, way too. But I do believe, however, that uh, because there are parts of the population who are, who maybe cannot as much verbalize for themselves, and they may have caretakers or the like, then the need to figure out where to pinpoint what or what marker may actually be in a way more important because, you know, other people in their lives in, in their lives may actually sort of speak for them. And so those individuals may not have that much of a relation or they may not have as much of familiarity with autism 
as a person themselves has. And so to them, it's, it's like every person is different. Every development is different. Every development is individualistic. Every development is independent. And so, you know, you want those caretakers and you want those individuals because I think that having it all labeled as a spectrum is more beneficial for people like me who are able to self-advocate, who are able to verbalize. And for people who are a lot more profoundly affected or severely affected, you know, who may depend on someone else to help them out in certain ways, shapes, or forms, um, the whole idea of having the spectrum relationship may not serve as much of a, of a help or may not serve as much of a factor for them. And, but I do believe, I think I've mentioned this before, I think that with people who have fewer supports may end up having a greater uh, development of comorbid mental health symptoms, whereas people who need a lot more supports may have a greater development of comorbidities that may have to do with, uh, you know, areas like developmental delays, uh, seizures, that kind of thing. So it, it's, it's very, very interesting. If we can be able to cut through the thicket in order to be able to serve the most amount of people, uh, whether they are all the way on a different end of the scale than someone else, but in a way we're not neglecting the fact that there are people out there who can talk and walk and do any, everything like anyone else, and then there are people who have severe or profound implications of their condition that it's such a different point of view that you, you've got to have, I, I think that slicing it up to these different subgroups and different comorbid groups in a way facilitates a greater feeling of the whole, but it should also, you know, if the person is at age five, and they're not speaking, they're not moving here, and they're not, you know, they're, they're not in the same, they're not developing in the neurotypical way. Um, you know, they may end up being that person who is able to advocate for themselves. In, in, in a way, it's, it's kind of like, you know, a person with even with the least amount of supports needed is basically what that person with the most amount of supports is. But you also have to factor in that the person with the most amount of supports, while they may be very, very similar to the person with the least amount of supports, needs their own help and in their own way. So mm -hmm. it's, it's uh, interesting to think about, I guess. It is. I, I like how you framed, you really did frame the pros and cons of both, both sides. And, and I think that there is a place for both approaches in not only this field, but like you were saying, in the broader field of psychiatry as well, you know, for um, definitely, um, I see what the researchers were trying to do here. I'll just say really quickly, they're, they're hoping to 
be able to classify subtypes for, you know, developing more suitable medications, I think is what they're, they're getting at. But, you know, um, just any treatment approach in general, there might be uh, a different perfect combination for helping someone to live their best life. Um, if they have such and such uh, biological traits or comorbidities. So it's, yeah, it's good stuff. And uh, your take on it was, was really well said. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. I kind of felt like my uh, commentary on the first story was better, but I feel like that, yeah, there's, there's a lot to be said about how we look at people as a whole and, you know, because of all the different conditions and different disabilities and different, you know, things that we have out there, how there's like so much out there, it's, it's, it can get, you know, kind yeah. of a little bit uh, hard to digest it all. So, you know, <laughs> trying to generalize it more and more can be very, very helpful. But there's also the scientific proof also that, you know, everyone is different and everyone has a difference and this and that. And so, you know, I guess that, that the most perfect solution would be to be able to have, still have that generalization of, but also have, you know, different spots on that spectrum that relate to um, the different types of groups within that spectrum. Right. All right, I'll pass it on to you here. Hopefully you're kinder to me with your questions than I was to you there. That was a, that was a complicated issue I had you answer on. No, but it was, it was uh, it's always good if you decide for yourself that you want to have courage and you don't want to have fear, you know, any, any question should be a good question, no matter how, you know, how challenging it is, it should always be a good question. Very so, well said. So in a story on CBS News, New York's website titled, Joseph Falco Jr. Overcomes Autism and the Odds, Ernst Valedictorian of Copiog High School's Class of 2022, I've read about how an individual who was first diagnosed with severe autism at a very young age with very low expectations of his future managed to zoom past those expectations to become a very high achieving high school student. While the term overcomes autism is debatable, still the right combination of therapeutic practices and specialized educational curriculums is able to turn him from someone with little re relation to the world around him to start in a high school debate club and starring in dramatic productions. And this was because his parents gave him a chance to prove everyone wrong. His goal is to head to Hofstra University to get a career with the FBI in cybersecurity. Like many other personalities of autism, he doesn't see his condition as a curse, but more like a blessing that he has been able to work with in an advantageous position, which is what his valedictorian speech was about. The lesson learned here is that the right support system can accomplish the unthinkable. How should we reframe the narrative for neurologists and childhood psychologists to be less about low expectations and defeatism and more about optimism and positivity? Seems to be a common theme to me about how that field misjudges people constantly when they're supposed to be smart enough to know better. 
My parents learned early that there was a guy who saw me who felt that my interests would plateau by the time I reached my 20s, for example. I would also like to ask if there is any relevancy that if the child doesn't grow up with a competent support system, that those ideas actually would transpire. Yeah, if I could make a quick comment on the story. First of all, the, uh, the guy who saw you that anticipated your interest would plateau by the time you reach your 20s. Um, I hope that you, you laugh at that uh, ceiling now since you've surpassed it uh, with such magnitude. But I think it's, you bring up a really interesting topic. I think it speaks to a broader issue that we have in the field of psychology and, and neurology as well, for that matter. Um, we're trained very well to recognize differences as disabilities, right, that need treatment and, or need medication. And as we're discovering more and more, you know, it's important to utilize more of a positive psychology approach, which is the focus of not only how differences are maladaptive, but also how differences can foster, you know, more advancement in a variety of industries and can also foster greater understanding of individual differences in the world. And I think that that approach will be huge, you know, trying to, uh, and this will start with professors and teachers educating you know, students um, in a different manner, you know, not emphasizing the, the disability aspect of a condition um, so much as emphasizing, you know, the differences and also the opportunities that are then there. Yeah. Um... I do believe that that is a very, very good answer. Um, I guess that part of it is that when you study autism and when you learn so much about individuals of autism for so long or anyone else who has a disability and it's a common occurrence to hear them say, well, when I was young, you know, people out there thought that I would accomplish little or people out there would think that I would have to be in an institution or something else. And then they're like, well, look at me now and look at everything I've done and blah, 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 blah. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is an interesting pattern here. Um, hopefully, you know, uh, there are people, it's, it's not, I'm not saying that, you know, the whole field should basically say, well, your child's gonna be a superstar but maybe be a little bit right. more realistic and say, you know, well, your child at this moment, you know, uh, you know, may or may not be a superstar, but it's, it's more about how the parents, you know, what, what you have to do is, I guess that the person would say, but I believe that there is potential for that child to be a superstar and this is what I've read this is what I've heard about you know inspiring the parent at the same time while being realistic instead of just basically giving you know 
a very simple analysis and that's it. So I, I remember yeah. one of the stories is about how Dr. Campbell Grandin, who we mentioned in the interview segment, um, I believe that she had said, or that it was said that her mother was told to put her in an institution because she would amount to very little. And this was back when she was like four or five years old. And you, you probably think to yourself, what would a child psychologist, what would someone like that even know about what to do with someone who is that young? Um, but, you know, it's, it's basically, like I said, one shouldn't basically just frame everything as you're going to be a complete winner and that, you know, you know, everything's going to turn out the best ever, but it should not be, you know, your child's a loser and that's what you have to treat this person as a loser for this person's whole entire life. So I don't know how you call it. Uh, maybe it's not loser psychology or winner psychology, but it's like um, there, there's got to be a word for it. And in time, I'll come up with that word. I'll coin it. You can use it in a journal or you can publish it in a book and you will get millions. And I'll be the person saying to everyone around the street or whatever, I was the one who came up with this term. I was the one who coined this term and this concept and everything like that. And I will just get a little bit bitter and I will get older and I'll be like, yeah, well, I hear all this point about this term and, you know, whatever it is. And yeah, but uh, I do believe that that uh, it would be good to come up with a with a term that basically accomplishes, you know, like I said, the right balance of reality and also inspiration. I like it. Credit will be given. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I appreciate that. People will look at the back of the book. It will say uh, term coined by Merrick Egbert, and then they'll all go, oh, who's this person? <laughs> and then they'll all buy the book, and then they'll all like send me, like uh, I'll get speaking dates and speaking engagements and You'll be on your book tour. We'll all win. Everybody wins. I promise I'll use at least 0.8 font size for that <laughs> reference. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And then I'll write a book saying this is my friend coined this term and I'll tell you more about it. Uh, no, no. My, my friend basically helped Stole. me in developing this term and I'll tell you more about it. Something like that. I don't know. I wouldn't use the term stole or I wouldn't use the term fee for anything like that, but whatever. <laughs> okay, so um, I'm sure that after all these stories and everything else that we've done, you've been waiting for this very moment where I will tell you all the last story of the program. <laughs> so this is, I guess, to also keep you all awake because... Uh, there are some interesting tidbits here and there in this story that I'm going to tell you all. Unfortunately, one story I couldn't quantify for this episode is about the awareness and knowledge of the everyday person about autism, or rather, maybe more so the person without autism about autism and about people with autism. 
Certainly the number of people with autism has exploded over the last number of years, but will we live in a society that is more aware and knowledgeable about such a large population? If I had to educate anyone about autism, I would utilize these four points, points that are of my view and of my view only. Point one, their development may surprise you. A developmental delay may not be a developmental stop. A friend of mine at work um, told me that, and I think that it is a great term to use. Many individuals with autism have had a history of being nonverbal in their early years and being total chatterboxes now, especially some of the biggest names in self-advocacy. Now, someone may always be nonverbal or have limited speech, and that is okay too. Set realistic expectations on the individual, but also work hard to make sure that they get the best treatment to allow them the best life experiences. Two, as my uh, fellow advisory board members, Dr. Shore would say, do not assume that individuals with autism have low intelligence. Sometimes we live in a world where if someone's behavior, communication, or way of thinking is different, we automatically assume that the person has low intelligence. We even look at deficits in certain skill sets and also assume low intelligence there too. Much of autism is invisible. Therefore, it is difficult to really understand someone's mentality without jumping into their shoes. Still, there are individuals with autism and intellectual disabilities, but not everyone with autism has an intellectual disability. So if that uh, friend of yours that you had in the sixth grade did not you know, talk about sports for a while and was not so big about sports and all that, it would probably be a little bit harder to understand who that person really is, right? Yes, that was the uniter in our friendship, definitely. Yeah, because, you know, I've, I don't know if anyone who has actually used that term myself, but uh, it's, it's a constant, you know, drumbeat that someone believes or, or someone has been told that you don't look autistic, but like, like I said before, it's an invisible, it, it's an invisible disability and an invisible condition. And I think that that is something that sometimes is hard for people to understand because if they can't see it, then it's harder to believe that the person has it. Okay, so actually very relevant to what we were talking about regarding your friend that you had. Um, do not treat a person's special interest as something to wean them off of. Many, many individuals with autism have special interests, sometimes more singular, sometimes more plural, but they have something that they really like to focus on. Instead of trying to create a barrier between yourself and that person, learn from that person about why this interest is special to them and how it defines them. Learn more about people with autism, which may inform your ability to understand why they like what they like. For example, many individuals with autism are visual learners. Combining that with the difficulty in understanding abstract language for many and subtle nuances in body language and conversation is why so many gravitate towards animation, whether it be TV, movies, or video games. If you really feel like you must create a broader range of interests in a person, and try to find something that relates close enough to where it can create that broader range you want. If an individual is into swimming, have them learn about water polo, for example. And fourth, this may be the most controversial, but if you want your individual with nonverbal autism a way to communicate, make sure that it is an accredited method of it. 
I've seen Rapid Prompting used in Why I Jump, the documentary that was all about nonverbal autism, and self-facilitated communication in the 2004 documentary, Autism is a World, which are both not certified by the American Speech Language Hearing Association, or ASHA. The problem with both is in how much the communication is done through the desires of the facilitator versus the desires of the individual themselves. Facilitated communication has also led to some pretty serious cases involving a nonverbal individual accusing their parents of horrendous crimes without any proof. Though nonverbal individuals have intelligence and are functioning members of society, the need to add communication to a nonverbal individual's curriculum should be done realistically and with as much independence for the individual as possible. This is also why I usually don't approach stories that have individuals with autism, with nonverbal autism, graduating from a ceremony or graduating from high school or college or whatever, and their main, uh, <clears throat> their main mode of communication is through either facilitated communication or rapid prompting, or rapid prompting because it's not exactly crystal clear how much control the person has over everything that, that has happened. So I, I, tried, I, I, I would love to jump up and cheer for individuals, but I also have to, you know, take everything with a grain of salt. And I, I'm sorry if, uh, full disclosure, I'm sorry, but if, if, um, if that maybe does something to the feeling of the podcast episode um, or any podcast episodes, but um, <clears throat> and I apologize if it doesn't, if I don't sound that much like an optimist in the way that people are trying to do things, but I, I do believe that if I want to approach a story, I would like to do it in a way where I feel like I, I have everything in my mind guaranteed. So with all of that, um, do you have anything you want to add, Nate, to all this? This is a fantastic list and a really nice way to cap off our 30th episode of the podcast. The one thing that I would add would be do not underestimate what you can learn from someone with autism or someone with a neurological difference in general. Oftentimes, people think about what they can do to teach that person more about how to function in society or teach them about linguistics or communication. And, you know, I've learned from people with autism to be more open, to be more understanding and accepting of, of differences. And I've also learned a lot about um, how, how amazing um, or how, how much passion you know, these people can have towards those uh, special interests that we spoke about. And that's pretty inspiring. So yeah, I would leave it at that. Okay. So uh, before we go, we want to thank the foundation for believing in us to be able to do a podcast for any willing listeners. And because of that, we will be seeing you again in October with some more coverage on us and the autistic community in general. Thank you all so much for tuning in and listening to us for 30 episodes, and we hope that you will listen to our 50th episode when that comes on. 
So, Nate, let's give them the greatest four we can ever do. Four. I wish that I could fly so high, oh, like a butterfly. I fly into the air so high, oh, like a butterfly. Moth is a butterfly without any colors But what's beautiful is what's inside Maybe a moth is just a butterfly trying to hide Well I'm just a caterpillar crawling around Knowledge in my head but my feet on the ground Soon I'll be like an angel in the sky Like a butterfly I wish that I could fly so high like a butterfly, I fly into the air so high. Oh, like a butterfly, like a bird, I was meant to soar. I will fly through the sunlight and even when it pours, you can't stop me when I get a hold of the wind. In the future, your eyes will light up to think that I was once a poor caterpillar. Like a flock of butterflies I wish I could fly So high Oh, like a butterfly I fly into the air So high Just like a butterfly Oh, 